MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, May 18th. I cannot believe it was just March 2020, (laughs) like a minute ago. But it is May 18th, 2022. This is episode number 70. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill. With me always uh, is Andrew Torres. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, it's fantastic to be here. And before we get started, as always, we want to thank our new patrons. Uh, Just a handful this week, but thank you to Christine Reyes to Simon, and to Robin Sotomayor. Oh, tell me we now have a direct line to the Supreme Court, do we? Do we? I would say that's almost entirely has to be correct, right? Yes. Uh, but, but whether or not you're a close family member of one of the few sane sitting Supreme Court justices, you too can get a shout out like this by heading on over to patreon.com slash aisle45pod, that's aisle five pod and pledging as little as a buck an episode. Yeah, you keep us going. Uh, the, as you, uh, you know, this is how we can keep making this show is because of patrons like you. And not only do you get the ad-free version of the show when you do that, you also get our bonuses, like the fantastic Zoom hangout we did with patrons on Friday the thirteenth, which was so fun. Ooh, that was a lot of fun. All right, we have quite a few bits of news to get <laughs> to uh, that we've sort of been following here. Why don't we kick this off, Andrew, with this really, uh, in my opinion, just chef's kiss minute order from the judge in the Eastman case that happened over the weekend, because this is my favorite thing. It, uh, Well, one of my favorite things, because this judge basically said, look, 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 I, you can argue about whether or not I should be doing this, but I'm going to start it anyway, because there's just so much. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So uh, on the 12th of May, last Thursday, um, what uh, the judge recorded was that uh, Eastman submitted his final privilege log. And so the 1-6 committee narrowed down from the 721 documents that we told you about this time a week ago to 601 documents in dispute that are the subject of the court's in-camera review. And and by the way, they, the, that's the wording from the language of the order, right? The court is reviewing these documents. So All of the arguments that uh, everybody's least favorite insurrectionist John Eastman has made regarding maybe the court should, you know, doesn't have a need to take a look at. Oh, no, (laughs) he's already lost that. The court is cognizant of the fact that Eastman's strategy is the run out the clock strategy. And so and speaking of running out the clock, it was the one six committee who asked for 
uh, an expedited hearing schedule and it, and it appears that it, it might be changed up a little bit but the end date of may 31st has been granted here and that's in that minute in this minute order isn't it yep uh the court gave eastman until friday at 10 a.m pacific time uh to file any objections uh but uh eastman having not done so has acquiesced to the following briefing schedule which is tomorrow as you're hearing this thursday may 19th Eastman shall file his opening brief, no more than 40 pages. Along with his opening brief, he is directed to file with the court and the 1-6 committee. I love this. I, know. I hear you giggling already. Well, because in his, his, his bullshit thing, he asked for all some sorts of discovery and evidence and documents from the 1-6 yeah. committee, which doesn't make any sense. So I need you to hand over a bunch of stuff. And the court's like... No, not only no, but also you have some homework to do. <laughs> right. And and as we saw during the very first hearing that, you know, we broke down in incredible detail, this court is still considering the arguments as to whether there are attorney-client relationships between the folks that John Eastman claims he represents. So in addition to briefing, Eastman is ordered by tomorrow to turn over, quote, Evidence of all attorney, client, and agent relationships asserted in the privilege log. Dr. Eastman shall also provide evidence documenting any attorney client relationships that existed with his clients. Evidence may include, and, and by the way, should include, if you're a real lawyer, engagement letters, retainer agreements, or other writings, right? And, you know, we, we talked about. He gives about them this. an out, though, right? He's like, even if you don't have that shit. Yeah, we're we're going to get to that, but I want to sidebar on this in a second, because one of the things that we were speculating about was, is the court going to draw an adverse inference from the fact that uh, John Eastman claimed to represent the president of the United States, did not not only did not have an engagement letter with the president, you know, the former president of the United States, the then president at the time, um, but couldn't be bothered to procure an affidavit to that effect. Right. Or or he tried and Trump was like, nah. Uh, yeah, uh, it always possible. So uh, and, and I would add, you know, as as we said at the time, look, are there clients? Right. I've represented hundreds of clients just from just since I've went out on my own right over the past six, seven years. Are there clients for whom maybe uh, I do not have a digital copy of our retainer agreement, our engagement letter? It's possible. But you know what? If I were in court. I would call up that client <laughs> and have them fill out an affidavit that said, yes, I hired Andrew Torres back in, you know, 2017. He did X for me, you know, that whatever. That's what you do if you're a real lawyer. If, if, if routinely, if all of these clients are clients for which John Eastman lacks engagement letters and doesn't have corroborating evidence, right, doesn't have affidavits from them, that that's a little different than like okay, well you found the one, right? Like it shows over some sort of a again, pattern of yeah, yeah. It, it would it would incline the judge to say it seems like this assertion of attorney client privilege is pretextual because again, remember, attorney client privilege rests with the client, right? Like this is not meant to protect Eastman. It's meant to protect the people that he represents. And if it's not clear that he really represents those people, then the, the court's interest, compelling interest in protecting that privilege is, uh, you know, diminishes towards zero. So, OK, so it says, look, 
turn over all your engagement letters, all your retainer agreements, anything you got in writing. And then it says the evidence shall confirm the timing and scope of each attorney relationship and each agent relationship, including specific named lawsuits, if applicable. Is that, that also uh, looking at the uh, work product doctrine? Is that what that's, that's exactly right? Because we know John Eastman was the point person for coordinating with state legislatures to uh, adopt these bogus, you know, we met in the parking lot of a Denny's slate of electors. And as this court has already ruled, that's not attorney work product privilege because it's not being prepared in anticipation of litigation. In fact, right, his his messages were like, we should do this before they could sue. Yeah. yeah. And I think 100 of the previous 101 emails that were handed over, forced to be handed over to the committee for no privilege, I think 100 of those 101 were because they didn't meet any work product doctrine. And the other one was crime fraud exception. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, and then the court, I think, correctly anticipating says, if there is no written documentation, the court will accept a sworn statement from an attorney, client, or agent in each relationship attesting that the written documentation does not exist and specifying the timing and scope of this relationship. Look, this is a tremendous little trap that the court has laid for Eastman here, because if everything that comes in are just affidavits from Eastman himself. In my view, that really, really sets up a potential perjury charge, right? Because Eastman will have to say, I hereby attest and affirm under penalty of perjury that, and then we'll have to specify it. And if you've got to do that for what seemed like a fair number of potential clients here, it seems like it would not be that hard to disprove if uh, if Eastman has you know lied or misrepresented uh, the, the the scope of the relationship here. So, and when you say uh, affidavit, you mean something that he wrote that's not signed by any other party. Correct. So, in other words, the way I read this is the court the court will accept a sworn statement, an affidavit from an attorney, right? And and, and could that include just Eastman himself? It, it could, but if Eastman decides that he's going to fill all of these out himself and he's lying about it, this really does create the kind of record that makes it possible to prosecute someone for perjury. I'm not Mm. saying he will be prosecuted for perjury. I'm saying these are the kinds of evidentiary records that get people prosecuted for perjury because he's going to have to specify that the relationship and uh, the the timing, the scope, all of it. So, you know, he he, a, a bare bones affidavit will not do. Yeah, and the, and the judge decided on the Trump Eastman attorney-client relationship through just emails and and you know things showing that they were working together, um, and of course his sworn affidavit that he was his his client. But what what cracks me up is just the thought in my head of John Eastman, who is up to his neck in shit, <laughs> trying to reach out to like a state legislator or a, another lawyer and be like, Hey bro, you want to sign a document saying we're buddies? And like, and just everybody just hanging right, like hanging up on him. Nope. Uh, well, especially since a number of these folks are separately under investigation, mm-hmm. right? Who I, it, you know, if I were one of these fake electors, uh, a, a, as we have documented, almost all of whom are high ranking state officials in their, in the respective state Republican parties, Right. I would hang up on John Eastman. 
Would yeah. you take his call? No, I mean, unless like, part of your defense is that you were being represented by John Eastman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would do a lot of like turning on the blender. Be like, I'm in a tunnel. Yeah. I don't, you know. Yeah. Uh, so all of that due tomorrow. Then the one six committee has a week to file a, a an opposition brief, no more than 60 pages in length. And uh, Eastman's reply brief is due uh, five days after that, Tuesday, May 31st, all by the end of the month um, in connection with the schedule that uh, that was sought by the 1-6 committee. What do you want to bet Eastman files for an extension on the privilege log documents affidavits for attorney-client privilege? And then the court comes back and said, brah, you had till Friday, May 13th to raise any objections to this particular expedited schedule. And you did not. So the answer is no. <laughs> so I don't know. I think Eastman might even be deterred from filing, you know, a request for extra time or for extra pages. The judge is on to his shenanigans, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it is that they that, that it is obvious that uh, his game plan is to try and run out the clock. And the one six committee has now represented in open court. Hey, we're going to begin our public hearings in June. You can't let this, you know, yeah. run out the clock. And and 601 documents. Again, we've we've mentioned this like the court will be done that review uh, before the, the briefing schedule runs out. Right. Like, yeah. That it's doesn't about, take that long. It's about 2000 ish pages or so. Uh, yep. And. That that was one of the things I wanted to ask you. When the court's like, mm-hmm. "Hey, I'm already going to begin the review of these 601 documents while you file your arguments and replies," are there arguments and replies to object to the in-camera review of those 601 documents and to prove and/or to prove from the committee side that they're not covered by privilege, or is the the review of the 601 do- uh, documents separate? Because this seems to me like the judge is saying, I'm going to go ahead and start the in-camera review. And if you can convince me that I shouldn't have done it, I won't do anything with what I've reviewed. <laughs> yeah. And again, you know, courts, you, you you can't put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. Um, so I, I don't think either side will waste time arguing that the document shouldn't or should be reviewed. Right. They're being reviewed. And and in fact, the direction in this order is that both parties' briefings shall address higher level objections that apply to a substantial number of documents, right? So that would be, right, attorney work product, right? Uh, the, those kinds of uh, uh, objections that apply to, you know, as the court says, a lot of these documents, as well as document specific objections, right? So this, you know, document 174 in particular is obviously copied to somebody who uh, was, uh, you know, with whom I was consulting on an attorney-client relationship, CX document that's attached, that sort of thing. Then it says, both parties shall argue whether the documents in question are subject to the court's reasoning in its previous order, right, that we've discussed, and may cross-reference or restate arguments made in their previous briefings. And, And that, I think, is the hint on... Uh, is this going to fall under the existing crime fraud exception or are they going to have to make arguments for a brand new crime fraud exception for things that maybe are tangential? Right. Like I I would be very, very comfortable as the one six committee lawyer arguing that anything related to the planning of one six. This court has already said, right, by a preponderance of the evidence, that's crime fraud. Mm-hmm. Right. Like so but, they would just be like. 
Ibid, 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 yep. Ibid on all these documents. Th- this this applies to the same shit you've already figured out. This, 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 this. Oh, you know what? This is a totally different crime. This is where Eastman wanted to steal a bicycle. So we're going to have to make this <laughs> argument. Da, 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 da. Um, but I think what's interesting to me is instead of the judge having both sides argue about whether or not any of these particular documents are uh, privileged or not, and then the judge reviewing the documents to decide for himself, he's doing yeah. this concurrently. I'm going to review them. You make your arguments. Uh, you can use the old arguments you already did if if they apply. Uh, and this, because this just sort of seems like the judge is like, look, dude. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like it's 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 going, the walls are coming the down. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's exactly right. <laughs> we just got to get this all on the record and we're, I'm going to do my job the same time you do yours. And I think that that's uh, uh, in, you know, in the interest of time, like you said, they've already come out and said June 9th is, is, is go time. So we need yep. this done. So two, two, two things on which to conclude. Right. The first is I read the extended analysis on crime fraud exception as preempting an Eastman argument that says, oh, well, the court ruled that planning to disrupt or delay the Electoral Count Act, right? the actual certification is the specific crime that this court has said uh, vitiates the attorney-client privilege under the crime fraud exception. But before we specifically came up with that scheme, all of the other stuff this court has not yet ruled is a crime. Like right? on so, the fraudulent electors thing, maybe? Exactly right. right? Okay. So it, 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 you would not want you would not want to be in a position where you have to relitigate from the beginning. OK, is it antecedent to the one six insurrection to, you know, get a whole bunch of fraudulent electors? Well, you know. Maybe it is. Let's not get stuck in that debate. Let's also say there could be additional related uh, activities that are likely criminal beyond uh, a preponderance of the evidence. Right. Yeah. And I imagine the court would be loath to have a little another little mini trial on the fraudulent electors thing uh, just to, you know, keep that out of the public sphere. Right. Just. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Look. This court has heard from John Eastman and has developed its conclusions about him as a witness. Right. Yeah. And 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 that gets to, you know, the, the, the second point, which is courts do not take on additional work that they don't have to do. Right. Not because judges are lazy, because judges are idiotically overworked. Right. Like we could double the size of the federal judiciary and still have a tremendous crisis in terms of. Uh, the existing workload. And so, yes, you should be reading into the fact that uh, the court is always, as we speak, reviewing these documents that um, the, the court thought that that was a necessary thing to do. So, yeah, and it and it, it will end up being, um, but you got to give them the chance to argue. So that's cool. Yep. All right. Uh, I would also like to talk to you today about uh, the Sussman hearing and, okay and, uh, what's going on with the Sussman case because it looks like we've got the witnesses it looks like we mostly know what evidence is going to be allowed and what's not going to be allowed and uh, they've seated the jury and I think that opening statements begin tomorrow from when we're recording and yesterday from when you're listening to this episode <laughs> yeah that's a that is exactly correct and I mean let's start off remember as you were watching this the goal 
that that John Durham has and has had from the very beginning is to obscure, to throw crap at the wall, to provide red meat for, you know, arch right wing blogs uh, that that deliberately obscure what's going on. Our job is to cut through all of that nonsense and tell you exactly what's happening, which is, again, remember, this is an accusation that Sussman has committed a single violation of 18 U.S.C. 1001. That is providing a false statement to, in this case, the FBI. And in order to convict, there is zero chance, by the way, that that John Durham will, will get a conviction here. But in order to convict, he's got to show that Sussman said the thing that Durham accuses him of having saying and, having said and, and that that was material that that, that made it's a difference material, that it mattered yeah. exactly and there's yeah. a big clue there's tons of big clues that it didn't matter <laughs> uh because what what Sussman's going to do is he's going to use a bunch of emails to show the FBI knew he was working for Perkins Coie knew he was working for Hillary Clinton knew he was working with Jaffe uh etc and that when he came to them with the stuff and said, I'm not really here on behalf of any client, whether or not he said that, we don't know. Um, but he, you know, he's he's contending he did not say that, uh, that the, the FBI didn't ask or wonder uh, if he was on their behalf of Clinton investigation. They went ahead with the investigation knowing he was there uh, and knowing he also worked for Clinton. They did what they did. And so it wouldn't have made a difference. That's the materiality part. And then also... You know, and we talked about that whole thing, Andrew. There was a bunch of might-haves from the Durham side. Well, the FBI might have been struck by lightning and had their, you know, you know, it, it was just all full of maybes and might-haves. There was no substance to the materiality argument. And, and that's why they filed, Sussman filed a motion to dismiss based on materiality, which never really gets accepted. So here we go to trial. Uh, uh, but, you know, also that he there was no one at witness that witnessed this conversation. And in the March 2017 FBI meeting with everybody there, when when McCabe said he was there on behalf of a client, nobody piped up and said, no, he wasn't. So there's there's really no case here. Yeah, that's right. And that goes to the credibility of Jim Baker as the witness. Right. Because as you have pointed out at tremendous length on this show, That's where the first element of proving this alleged crime beyond a reasonable doubt has to begin. Right. It has to begin with a court saying right with a with a with a trier of fact saying we think that Jim Baker, who took no contemporaneous notes on the 18th. Right. uh, On September the 18th. uh, And who uh, the uh, over whom John Durham has just uh, introduced the exculpatory Brady material that we talked about two weeks ago, right? Which was that, as you just alluded, uh, that in the March 2017 meeting, uh, which was six months later, said nothing, did not pipe up at all and say, oh, hey, no, I thought uh, Sussman came in here just kind of off the street. Right. And um, the fact that Durham refreshed his memory with his specific notes and not the other exculpatory yeah. notes and the pre-step notes. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. that and that Baker was like, oh, well, I, I guess so. Uh, if <laughs> you know, uh, because he has testified that he doesn't have recollection of it. He's testified that it didn't happen. He testified that it did happen. He told the IG something. But I mean, he's never lied. He's never lacked candor or anything. It's just an inconsistent 
te- testimony, right? So yeah, he's a, he's a sh- he's a great guy, I'm sure, but he's a garbage witness. <laughs> he's a garbage <laughs> witness for Durham. Long, I mean, you know, long-standing uh, Republican operative. So I'm not I'm not sure he's even a great guy, but uh, right, but yeah. but that's right. I mean, you don't have to tear down Jim Baker as being. Uh, you know, a, a part of a conspiracy or whatever to just say this doesn't rise to the, the, the here's kind of how I would think about it. Right. If you had a hit and run accident and you had one eyewitness and you bring the eyewitness in and, you know, we're trying to convict you, Allison, and uh, and the prosecutor points over and says, and is that the person you saw drive away from the scene of the accident? And the witness is like, well, probably uh, that's not enough right <laughs> like yeah that, or or they come in and say yeah i yeah. think it was her and they go yeah but you told the cops that it wasn't uh right. then, I, then that's you just did, you didn't right yeah that's exactly right it is all of this is about how much you should believe the testimony what 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 probabilistic estimate you should assign to jim baker saying that michael sussman came in and did not disclose uh, his particular clients, right? And and as you've pointed out, as we've moved to trial, I think largely because of the the mountain of documentary evidence, Durham has really refined this to be excluding both Hillary Clinton and Jaffe as well, right? Like so, in other words, we've been focusing not on the Rodney Jaffe part, uh, but on the Hillary Clinton aspect. And oh, I, so whether I, he was rep- representing two clients or one client or a client. Yeah. And, and, and now, mind you, right, the more as you, as you retreat to that kind of a position, right, which is let, let's suggest, right, that, uh, that, that the finder of fact determines that Sussman was hiding, was had disclosed or at least not, will not find beyond a reasonable doubt that he did not disclose Hillary Clinton. But suppose they find that beyond a reasonable doubt that he did not disclose Rodney Jaffe. At that point, then, that's what switches over to the materiality threshold. And the idea, the story from the beginning, again, this represents an indication of just how badly John Durham's case is going. At the beginning, the story was pretty straightforward, right? Oh, yeah, you came in here off the street uh, said you were sort of a good Samaritan. And as it turns out, you had a political agenda to uh, hurt Donald Trump. And that's why you didn't tell us that you represented Hillary Clinton. Well, once you've conceded or once you've lost uh, as an element of the crime that he's conceded Hillary Clinton, now it becomes even more difficult to make that materiality threshold. Well, you didn't tell us about your relationship with Rodney Jaffe. Well, how on earth could that possibly make a difference? Right, right? and it wouldn't. Yeah, but that's why. But that's why we've seen in the past couple of weeks these motions in limine trying to beef up uh, Durham's argument with respect to Fusion GPS and and that sort of thing because they're looking they're looking for any kind of straw to 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 grasp to fall back on. Yeah, and that the FBI didn't find any crime here isn't the point it's that they open an investigation and so uh, that's it's immaterial to to opening an investigation it might have been material oh rodney jaffe well let's talk to the researchers and then finding out from that and looking at the data and the fbi says no there's nothing here that may have a 
impact on the outcome of the investigation, but not the initiation of it. Yes, that is that is exactly right. And again, uh, all of that evidence was dramatically curtailed uh, by the judge in connection with these motions in limine. Essentially, the way to think about it is uh, that. Uh, Sussman has to raise the issue, has to put it uh, in issue, uh, and then Durham can cross-examine on, you know, these minutiae on Alpha Bank. Oh, and right. Like, uh, but, yeah, Sussman yeah. has to want to prove those data are awesome and reliable and were gathered in a, in a, a above-board way in order to open the door for, for Durham to go into any of that at all. That is exactly right. <laughs> And that's the right way to do it because that's not what the that's not what this is about right now. If this were a conspiracy case, if 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 uh, if Sussman were somehow charged with conspiracy, okay, then let's let's look into the conspiracy of it. But there was no conspiracy, there right. was none and, charged, and if there, you know, and that's why all of this conspiratorial stuff was not allowed into evidence because the judge is like, look, you didn't charge him with the conspiracy charge, so why are you even talking about the? The validity of the data or what the researchers were saying, or it's not illegal, by the way, oppo research. It's not illegal for Fusion GPS, who is an oppo research firm, to want to get this story to the press. That's their job. So, yeah, it's it's all it's going to be an interesting trial. No, it, it, that is exactly right. Really, really perceptive. And, and what I want to to draw out from what you've just said is the reason that Durham did not introduce a a conspiracy charge is because he could not get the grand jury to issue an indictment on a conspiracy charge because that would require remember the elements of a conspiracy are you have to prove agreement and then an overt act and there is just zero evidence that these folks conspired in fact right? the judge went took the step of of saying look i'm not going to determine whether there was a conspiracy here but what i can determine is that there were people in your group of conspirators who didn't know. And so that kills the whole conspiracy right there. Yeah. Have a nice day. You, can, you cannot have a conspiracy among people who do not know what the conspiracy is. <laughs> I like how he said, well, just that the, those emails exist. And he's like, yeah, but see, the, the guy who you're trying to indict has to know they exist in order for them <laughs> yeah. to have an impact in order to in order to change your behavior based on their existence otherwise right we've got the total recall precog situation not total recall of minority report precog situation right like that we do not attribute omniscience uh to the to criminal defendants and you know nor should we no but only you know if you know if you're if you're buying beer for some kids or something, then it's totally well, yeah, then it's totally yeah. fault. Fair. Not that I don't have any experience with that. Um, <laughs> as the kid, so as teenage the kid. listeners, if you want <laughs> no, no, Allison no. to buy beer for you <laughs> no, no, and no, live no, in no, the no. Southern California region, no, as the kid, oh, <laughs> and okay. it was Boone's Farm. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I thought you were saying you wanted a side job, you know, <laughs> hanging outside the Seven Eleven, <laughs> buying uh, buying beer for kids. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, no, <laughs> it's not. It's not the most lucrative pay in the world. It, but it's not, and really. I you know that's for me you can't have any um all right next up I I want to talk a little bit about and, and really briefly the one six committee has subpoenaed five Republican members of Congress probably more I, I I haven't seen anything out today but I think more are coming at least that's the rumor from sources inside the committee and uh 
The thing that everyone seems to be wondering about, first of all, I just want to preface this by saying uh, criminal referrals and, and whether the DOJ indicts really, I mean, eventually they, they do matter, but they don't matter for this committee. Meaning yeah. you're not, just because <laughs> Bannon is, doesn't have a trial until July doesn't mean anything for the committee. The committee, like, it's not like when he has a trial, he's going to be forced to tell truthful testimony to the committee. No, we're just punishing him for not showing up and being a dickhead. It, he, it's not going to compel any good testimony from any of these fuckers, right? Uh, and so, I, I, a lot of people are wondering, but I still want to know, and and we can we can unpack that too. But I still want to know whether or not the speech or debate clause would chill. This one six committee. We already thought they'd be chilled because they didn't want to be subpoenaed when, right, you know, right. But that went out the window, and and good for them for for saying, you know, fuck that. We're we're gonna do our jobs and subpoena these guys. We're not afraid of you. Um, but let's say they don't show up or somehow defy their subpoena, which I don't think is going to happen. I don't think they're gonna defy these subpoenas. I think they're gonna, you know, maybe demand something. St- stupid like it be videotaped or something or be public testimony and only then will they come in and they made an effort so you can't charge them with anything uh and and that would be the case right but let's say they totally defied let's say just mo brooks said i'm just not fucking showing up and i'm not gonna try to make a deal with you or anything and did pulled a ban in would the speech or debate clause chill this committee from making a criminal referral for a member of congress to the department of justice or if they do make the referral, get them off the hook with the Department of Justice, where the Department of Justice says that speech or debate clause covers this. So I love that preamble and the setup. And I think you've got this exactly correctly. And 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 I want to amplify something you said on our uh, Zoom hangout on Friday, right, which is the one six committee's job beginning in June, right, beginning next month is to lay out to the American public what happened and pin the blame on the Republican Party, right? Because they are the ones who are responsible for orchestrating an insurrection in the United States. And all of this, right, in terms of criminal referrals is is ancillary to that, right? Because ultimately, if the public does not, if the needle hasn't moved from where we are now to where we ought to be after hearing the end result of the one six committee. If the average person does not go, well, gosh, like this is really bad. And we ought to care about the fact that the president of the United States enlisted members of Congress in a scheme to overturn a democratic election. Now to me, that should be obvious that you should care about that. But if the one six committee can't make people care about that, then none of the rest of this matters, right? Like it, it, I, ooh, like you're you're gonna get an indictment against Mo Brooks, right? Who cares? For, yeah, right? for a thirty day minimum that can probably be served over weekends or at home confinement, uh, and maybe uh, even if that. And you know, there's uh, also the the argument that these indict well, congressional indictments have no teeth; they're worthless if they don't do anything with them. But I would just direct you to Steve Bannon's home. Yep, yep. Uh, but again, remember, right, in addition to all of that, like you have to persuade a jury unanimously <laughs> to convict here. And if the one six committee has not convinced the general public, then, you know, your ability to convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt seems seems very dubious. OK, so all of that is preamble. Let's talk about I do think, uh, nevertheless, 
right? We have said on this show, you and I firmly believe the rule of law requires that we not establish the precedent that that co-conspirators, that people who are guilty can just tell the United States House of Representatives to go fuck itself, right? So I think that is important. And I do not think the speech or debate clause will wind up being a barrier to uh, making those criminal referrals. And I do not think it will unambiguously persuade the DOJ not to indict. And here's why. Let's start off with what the speech or debate clause is. (laughs) Not a lot of people are quoting this one out here. So this is Article 1, Section 6 of the Constitution says, for any speech or debate, in either house, the members, the senators and representatives, shall not be questioned in any other place. Okay, that's it. <laughs> and from that is which stems the entirety of all of our jurisprudence going back to, you know, 13th century Saxony uh, regarding legislative privilege. Right. If you think about those words, you might have the kinds of questions that that lawyers have, right? Which is, well, what does it mean to be engaged in speech or debate? What does it mean to say that a member of Congress will be questioned? And what does it mean to say in any other place, right? So think about the implication of what it means to be questioned and what it means to say in any other place. Does that mean the only thing that counts is asking questions of members of Congress while they're on the floor, right, of the Senate or the House. Well, we know that that's not the case, right? We know that that's not the case because the Constitution also makes it clear and 250 years of precedent makes it clear that Congress may expel its own members, right? They may discipline their own members. They can sanction them in any particular way. They can kick them out of the House, so and, and that is less than an impeachment, right? That just requires a particular threshold of voting from among the members. So certainly in any other place suggests that there's a different standard for holding members of, of Congress accountable by themselves, by other members of Congress, which is what we have here, versus uh, what the legislative history underlying the speech or debate clause, uh, that is the idea of holding them accountable by the executive branch, right? Saying, oh, the executive branch controls the Department of Justice. That's what hands out indictments. We want to make sure that the executive branch is not overreaching its authority on the legislative branch. And however, you know, however much you assign that separation of powers issue, notice that it's lessened here, right? Because this situation could not, we're talking about a referral, this is something that could not have been orchestrated solely by the executive branch, right? So this is not a thing to worry about, like, could a Republican president do this to a Democratic member of Congress? No, because you would need Congress itself to make that referral in the first place. So that's kind of the first hint that we have okay. that, this you is, know. This is Congress doing something. Yeah, it's Congress, Congress doing something rules. to itself. Right. And, and. Generally speaking, courts have said we don't look into that. Right. Uh, It it is not a justiciable question to take a look at how and to what extent Congress disciplines its own members. Right. Um, Then then you have the question of what counts uh, as speech or debate. 
right? And that's it's a broader statement than you'd think, um, but it's also it, it it doesn't mean everything, right? And so the the case law is really rife uh, with instances where legislators have uh, voted or argued about a bill and then you know defamed somebody afterwards. Um, and and the case law is like right if it is not intrinsic to the act of passing or or arguing for or against particular legislation that doesn't seem to be speech or debate right and so think about that in connection with suppose and again we don't have this evidence yet but suppose we had evidence that john eastman conspired with ted cruz uh to raise as big a stink as possible at every stage of the proceedings right then Ted Cruz's absurd, idiotic, angrifying statement on the on the afternoon of one six, which I still remember. This was this was pre-insurrection, but I remember Ted Cruz getting up there and going, Well, I object to this because, you know, a substantial number of people believe that this election was fraudulent. And so all we're asking for is a pause to go back and and evaluate whether it was actually fraudulent or not. And at minimum, that will assuage those folks who think that this election was illegitimate. And, you know, and you're sitting there going like Ted, the only reason these people think the election was illegitimate is because of shit people like you said, right? Right. It's not based on actual evidence. And the fact that you're asking for a pause, which is exactly what John Eastman was asking for, and while also (laughs) saying that that was illegal, is is very interesting. But yeah. Suggests some conspiratorial beforehand. And the way that I would would parse that is, yeah, you cannot uh, interrogate Ted Cruz about that speech. But... If you wanted to interrogate him about what happened not on the floor of the Senate prior to that speech three days earlier in talking to John Eastman, I don't see any reason why you couldn't do that. Right. Like that is not an aspect of the speech or debate in in the same way. Right. In which it would be trivially easy to prosecute a member of Congress. Uh, think of like the abscam scandals. Right. Like uh, for introducing legislation because they've been bought off by a particular person, right? So you have the standard corruption, bribery. I give you, Senator Gill, a million dollars, and I say, I want you to introduce the following legislation on the Senate floor. Well, okay, we're not interrogating you. We're not arresting you. We're not charging you in connection with the legislation. Right. But absolutely. Matt Gaetz is a great can, example of this, yeah. right? I mean, he's yeah. being uh, criminally investigated for potential bribes on marijuana legalization and licensing, which he introduced in the Florida state legislature, but also voted for in the House. And, and that vote and his, you know, speeches on legalization of marijuana in the, the House, you can't, that's not a crime. But yep. accepting a, a trip to Bahamas and some uh, underage sex trafficked girls is. <laughs> a- absolutely. <laughs> All of this falls under the question, generally speaking, of what counts as a member of Congress's, quote, legislative function. And the way that we look to that, um, it, th- there are very few of these cases in, in, in our nation's history. Um, the, the Supreme Court case is a case called Kilbourne versus Thompson from 1880. That quotes heavily <laughs> from a much earlier case in 1808 Massachusetts Supreme Court case called Coffin versus Coffin. Okay. And in that original Massachusetts state court, what happened was a member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives uh, made defamatory remarks about a person <laughs> after 
the vote on that particular resolution had taken place, right? So they they cast the votes, and then afterwards, uh, Representative Coffin said a whole bunch of defamatory stuff, right? And so the Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, right, said the speech or debate clause offers no protection after the votes happen, and then defined a kind of, it's like, look, this is pretty easy here, right? Because the vote took place and was over, and then this guy started frothing off at the mouth. But how do we understand in situations where it's not so clear cut? And here's what Coffin said, and this was quoted, relied upon by the Supreme Court. This still remains the benchmark test, right? These privileges are thus secured, not with the intention of protecting the members against prosecutions for their own benefit, but to support the rights of the people by enabling their representatives to execute the functions of their office without fear of prosecutions, civil or criminal. I therefore think that the article ought not to be constructed strictly, but liberally, that the full design of it may be answered. I will not confine it to delivering an opinion, uttering a speech or haranguing in debate but will extend it to the giving of a vote, to the making of a written report, and to every other act resulting from the nature and in the execution of the office. And I would define the article as securing to every member exemption from prosecution for everything said or done by him, it was all him at the time, as a representative in the exercise of the functions of that office without inquiring whether the exercise was regular according to the rules of the House or irregular and against their rules. I do not confine the member to his place in the House, and I am satisfied that there are cases in which he is entitled to this privilege, which are not within the walls of the representative chamber. Okay, so that's the broadest possible application of the speech or debate clause. And notice all of the, yeah, we should construe it liberally. We should not inquire into, you know, was this uh, the kind of speech you usually give or not? Or did it come out irregularly? Did you follow the rules? We're not going to talk about any of that shit. But notice that the right stems from the right of the people. This is not meant to protect individual members of Congress. It's meant to protect the people that they represent in having a representative who is not afraid to do what they want on their behalf. And that's where it ends. Right? Sort of reminds you, me of uh, Gravel um, yeah. and the case against him and his aide who went on to read the Pentagon Papers in his stead and that that they found the court found that the speech or debate clause extended to that aid. Right. So it's, it's very liberally applied when it protects the people and not the individual representative. That is exactly right. And so that's why the court has had no problems, right? Uh, there was a subsequent case, a 1972 case called United States versus Brewster, which was pretty much exactly the hypothetical that I just talked about, right? <laughs> in which the court said it is taking the bribe, not the performance of the illicit compact that is the criminal act, right? So in other words, no, the the speech and the speech or debate clause, I keep saying speech and debate clause because I coached speech, speech and, and debate, debate. <laughs> for a long, long time, right? Yeah, so that one's uh, that one's part of my uh, ingrained uh, muscle memory. But no, the speech or debate clause d does not protect you when you are bribed to give a speech or otherwise perform a legislative function because it covers right because the criminal act is not the conclusion it's the taking the bribe so inquiry into the legislative performance itself is not necessary so in other words let's think about that one a little bit right if what we said was everything that happened on the floor of the senate is 
you know, the floor is lava, you're on base, right? Like it's as if it doesn't occur. Well, well, if that were the interpretation, then you could not prosecute somebody for pay for play, right? Take take the bribe and introduce a bill because yeah, you couldn't prosecute uh, one senator from shooting another because he right. disagrees with it, him on the vote. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And so what this says is we're not inquiring into the merits of why you introduced that piece of legislation. We're not in any way interfering with your responsibility to the public when we take judicial notice of the fact that in order to connect up this crime, right? Like it's it's not it does not complete the bribery. There's there's no quo <laughs> until you introduce the piece of legislation. But it is not inquiry into the legislative performance itself when you've done it for bribery. Right. And something else that came to mind when I was thinking about this was the decision of the Department of Justice on whether or not to represent Mo Brooks, certify Mo Brooks in his lawsuit, uh, the lawsuit against him and the Department of Justice said, no, we, we aren't going to represent you. First of all, our main reason is because you were campaigning, and that's not campaigning is not part of your uh, function. But even if the court decides that you weren't campaigning, cooing <laughs> is also not part, cannot be part of your job, nor is it can, can it be considered part of the job of any federal employee. And so that sort of, and I know this is a different standard and it's a different situation uh, but that popped into my head too and if I were trying to argue that you should be able to indict uh, a member of Congress for not complying with a subpoena uh, because of you know one of their defenses might be well it's, it's part of my job and also speech or debate clause you could argue with the speech or debate clause the several items that you just mentioned but you could also argue against it's part of your job with you know Department of Justice says no um, doing a coup is not cannot possibly be considered part of your job, and and I like I like all of that. I in particular the distinction that you're drawing that is predicate to that is a distinction that the Supreme Court drew in the Brewster case, right? Which which was the first time the Supreme Court said, "Look, I, I know this is tough to tease out, but when we look at what counts as legislative activity." We need to distinguish between what the court, the Supreme Court called purely legislative activities, right? Like introducing bills on behalf of your constituents and activities that are, quote, political in nature and therefore not inherently protected by the speech or debate clause. Right. The speech or debate clause is meant to protect your citizens on your behalf. Right. But. It is not meant to protect all sorts of politics, right? So here's what the court said. Legislative acts are things generally said or done in the House or the Senate in the performance of official duties and in the motivation for these acts. But political activities include, quote, a wide range of legitimate errands performed for constituents, the making of appointments with government agencies, assistance in securing government contracts, preparing so-called newsletters to constituents, news releases, and speeches delivered outside the Congress. So, look, again, I, I do not mean to suggest that this is a clear-cut case, right? Like right. These, This is an ambiguous clause with a lot of ambiguous phrases, and if you wanted to argue, right, that uh, the speech or debate clause applies to the, the uh, members of Congress who 
potentially participated and planned in the insurrection. You would argue that motivation language that I that I just read there. But if you wanted to argue the flip side. Right. And this is where I am building on your right. Doing a coup is not a legislative activity. I would argue, right, that all of the motivations, that all of the connections to the office that are being asserted here by folks like Mo Brooks are political and not legislative connections, right? Like wanting to overthrow, wanting to refuse to certify a democratically certified election is the very definition of a political activity, right? Like that's not a legislative activity. That's saying, yeah, I represent my constituents and my constituents hate Joe Biden, but that doesn't matter, right? Like you do not have a right to act on behalf of your constituents to engage in political activities. You have a right to act on behalf of your constituents to introduce legislation and to do the stuff that's necessary to introduce that legislation. And I would think, especially if that political activity were criminal. um, Yeah. (laughs) Like, for example, it is totally within the right of Ted Cruz to object to electors from a state. He has... That is a legislative activity. Democrats have done it. Ted Cruz. We, you can do that. You can object to electors. Yes. Uh, however, if and so there's that. But if you're objecting to to just, you know, part of, as part of your legislative job. OK, but not to delay the count as part of a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Can you do that? I would think that. And, and to me. Right. Again, not a clear cut case. Right. Ted Cruz is going to say, yeah, you don't get to inquire into my motivation. But I think the better response is, well, look, we kind of do in a couple of ways. Right. Number one, if your motivation can be tied to pre-conduct criminal activity, we absolutely get to inquire into it. Right. And that's the bribery case. That's the Brewster case. That's a knockdown argument. And then I think the second aspect is, right, and also if you're undertaking these activities as part of the political process as opposed to as a part of the legislative process, that also seems to have less protection. So, again, notice I put a lot of seems and maybes and, you know, I do not. One of the things that I, I think our listeners value is that you know, I will tell you, right, <laughs> if something's a knockdown, right, like the Georgia election tampering statutes, I will tell you it's a knockdown. I don't want to tell you this is 90 percent. I, I do want to tell you it's 70 percent, right? 65. It, it's it's the better arguments, I think, are on the side of criminal referrals. And I think everybody, if you came to this, if you strict if you stripped parties out of it, and just posed it as a hypothetical to lawyers across the political spectrum. I, I think that's the answer you'd get, right? Two thirds, one third. Yeah, I don't think the speech or debate clause was really meant to apply in this kind of situation. Doesn't mean there isn't a counter argument, but that's how I see it. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it's going to depend on, you know, if it does get to the Department of Justice, whether it's the crime of conspiring to obstruct an official proceeding or the crime of flouting a congressional the subpoena, the congressional subpoena one, I'd have an easier time with. Um, uh, but um, the the due process and yep. prosecutorial discretion and elements and high bar needed for a conspiracy to defraud the United States or obstruct an official proceeding is a whole other ballgame. Yep, I think that's exactly meaning right. very very difficult, <laughs> yep. especially for I... members of Congress because of the speech or debate clause because they can object to these you know to these. Uh, 
uh, electors. However, I know, I know, I know. I'm with you. It's a fucking crime. They should go to jail. But, you know, we'll see. There's prosecutorial discretion stuff. Yep. All right. Uh, I think that um, that's going to wrap it up for us, except I do want to just sort of point out a really cool thing that... that um, that uh, we we'd recently found out about the subpoena. You know how uh, Trump took six, 15 boxes of, of top secret documents uh-huh. to uh, Mar-a-Lago. We just found out. It took the National Archives a year to pick up the fucking phone and call the Department of Justice. I don't know why. Um, and so now the Department of Justice has it. They've been investigating. Uh, recently, within the last week or so, they sent a subpoena to the National Archives for the boxes of documents, what they got back from Donald. Um I imagine they probably smell like Axe body spray and there's chewing gum in there. I don't know. It's probably not something I would want to look through. But um, <laughs> they're going to get those. And and so I the something that stood out to me that nobody else was asking is why the fuck does the Department of Justice need to issue a subpoena to the National Archives? They should just be able to go over, knock on the door, chain of custody, have the archivist hand the box over to the Department of Justice. Ta-da, we're done because I work for the government forever. And you don't have to subpoena interagency. But yes, you do sometimes. And so uh, <laughs> I asked a question. I got the answer from our, our good friend, Pete Strzok, who knows a thing or two uh, about subpoenaing documents. That I, I didn't know this one. This is, I had to admit, uh, it, it was a stumper for me. So this is great research by you. Yeah. And, and this is pretty cool. It's, it's called 36 CFR section 1270. And it's all of the rules on how to handle presidential records that the archives have because those presidential records are off limits to anyone like if i if you submitted a FOIA request uh andrew for some presidential records from national archives you wouldn't get it because for five years those documents are ixnay quiet secret you can't have them except for 19 different times (laughs) (laughs) and uh, one of them is if the current president says i need those to do my job and another one, uh, one of the other uh, possibly uh, possible uh, ones of import, is a subpoena from from another uh, from the Department of Justice that we need those documents for something that we're looking into. So in order to get those records, the Department of Justice has to subpoena them. That triggers thirty days for Donald to make an objection. Now he's not objecting to the courts; he's objecting to Biden. Okay, he's objecting to the archives. And so then, once Donald Trump objects on the 29th day, on the 23rd hour, uh, then Biden has 30 days to consider the objection. Uh, and given that he's, for, for eight times now, he's, you know, rejected that, uh, I don't think that he would grant that. And the Supreme Court has already decided all the National Archive stuff has to go uh, where it needs to go. So he wouldn't get far with a, a lawsuit trying to block this either. Uh, but that is why it's necessary. Now... I know what you might ask. You might, well, if Biden can just get him and say that he's doing it as part of his job, why doesn't he just do that? And that's probably because that giant, huge wall that they have put between the Department of Justice and the executive branch to keep Joe Biden out of this fight, right? That That is 100% exactly right in every way. And, and again, if the decision-making is in the hands of NARA, right, that this is a, a mirror image. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago of, you know, what private actors will do when uh, there is an existing, you know, policy confidentiality relationship with their clients. Right. They'll say, hey, give us a valid subpoena and then we'll do it. Right. And and this is codified at, at 
36 CFR 1270.44, which says, even when a president imposes restrictions on access, NARA still makes presidential records of former presidents available in the following instances, subject to any rights, defenses, or privileges in which the United States or any agency or person may invoke. And as you pointed out, one of those is in response to a properly issued subpoena or other judicial process for the purpose of any civil or criminal investigation or proceeding. So very clearly applies here. It's why they went out and got got the subpoena. It makes total sense. Um, but you and I did kind of puzzle over the like, <laughs> why? Why is the left hand going into the right pocket? And, you know, and this is why. Yeah, very interesting. All right. And I guess our little last piece of news is that the Greenberg sentencing has been pushed back again. And, and the judge this time was like, all right, but you only have until August. It will be a year since he was originally supposed <laughs> to be. He's been in jail, by the way. He's not out having margaritas. Right. So don't get pissed. Um, but it's been a year. Now, August, September, October, that's right around that 60 day mark before an election. Um, I've noticed. Uh, and so unless they indict Gates like today, uh, I don't know that we're going to see anything until after the election. I think that's right. And again, I, I, I do not know why. And I'm as unhappy as you are. But I, but I think that uh, that it is absolutely worth flagging that for our listeners. Yeah, And they did file it under seal, the request, and they're going yep. to be filing their update in July on the 13th under seal their status update under seal because and they've given the reasons we don't want to alert anybody who might flee or destroy evidence or get get knowledge of or you know hide or destroy evidence or witness tamper um and so they are filing everything under seal i don't know what's going on in the matt gates part of this investigation i know that there's yeah. a huge wide-ranging investigation into fraudulent electors and adderall dealers and all sorts of other things but with regards specifically to the Matt Gates investigation with the public corruption and the bribery and then, of course, the sex trafficking uh, and the underage sex trafficking of sex trafficking of minor, th- they got their killer testimony back in January. So I'm not sure what the holdup is here. I don't know if they've declined to prosecute Matt Gates and they're just working on other stuff with Greenberg. But I also haven't heard that those two prosecutors on loan to specifically oversee the Matt Gates investigation are still there. I haven't heard that they've left. They're still there and they haven't resigned in protest. So I have a little hope. Yeah, uh, I share that. But again, we, we just, because everything is filed under seal, all we can do is speculate and we can apply what has been made public to to give you sort of the proper expectation. Nobody wants to see Matt, Matt Gates go to jail more than the two of yes, us. Don't worry. So, <laughs> I, um, I, I want to take us out on what the, we don't have time for the full comings and goings. But but again, just item number eleven thousand seven hundred and four as to Joe Biden doing work um, under the former guy, the bipartisan U.S. Sentencing Commission, right, which was created to reduce sentencing disparity disparities, promote transparency and proportionality in criminal sentencing, um, was just allowed to fall bef- below a quorum, right? G- terms ended and Trump was not interested in appointing folks to the Sentencing Commission because um, that's what Republicans do. They get into office, they break shit, and then they complain that government doesn't work. Stop falling for their, for their scams anyway um there wasn't a quorum so the sentencing commission couldn't transact its daily business and uh now uh biden has uh, nominated seven folks onto the sentencing commission 
that will bring it above a quorum, including a new chair, two new vice chairs, and um, we can actually kind of get back to, you know, taking a look at sentencing disparities in this country, which remains a super duper important problem. I look, I know, right? A lot of other problems in this country, uh, but um, you know, this this government can can walk and chew gum at the same time. So yeah, and uh, something else pretty cool. I think they just finally approved the final two postal board members. Yep. Mm-hmm. So we should see DeJoy out of there. I, you know, I would have liked that to have been yesterday, but, um, like yesteryear you know, we'll, would be, would yeah, be nice. yeah, yester never, uh, <laughs> anyway, so where's that's my cool. time machine. Very there we cool. go. And we'll go over, uh, you know, we had a couple other comings and goings. We could tack those on next week. Not a problem. Yep. And, uh, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for answering my questions. I had a ton of them and, uh, we will see you all next week on clean up on all 45. I've been Allison Gill. I'm Andrew Torres. And, uh, yeah, this is clean up on all 45. Have a great week. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>